I want to read you this passage. It was out of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And one of the things that we celebrate together as Father's Day within the church is a father's that we're dealing both with biological or maybe uh, familial fathers, meaning in family, whether adopted or biological. And then we're also dealing with fathers that are spiritual fathers. And this is what it says. Paul said this about spiritual fathers. He said, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. And that's what it means to be a spiritual father. It means one who comes alongside and disciples others, who cares for them, to, who is present with them. And when I look at my own life, I can see that I have a biological father, but I had other spiritual fathers in my life, men who mentored me, who guided me. And then I had kind of surrogate fathers who, at a time in my life when my parents divorced, men who were in our church, men who were in my family, uncles, grandfather, that served in that role. And so that's what we're celebrating today as the body of Christ. And so that's why when we say you're heading outside, that we honor all those that really are, are, are men, just the same way we honored all the women on Mother's Day, because the reality is whether you have children or not, you can still be a spiritual father. And that's what we're celebrating today. So I wanted to clarify that this morning with us. And kind of with that in mind, we're going to be looking and taking a break here just from Luke this morning. And we're going to be looking at this well-known, famous passage on love in 1 Corinthians 13. And as we look at this passage, there's a, a real sense that in this particular scripture, that what is being spoken of, the love that's being spoken of, is actually the Father's love for His people. So often we speak of this passage of love is patient, love is kind, and we go through that, and we think about all these things that we ought to be as a determined love. But these are actually characteristics of God. This is actually the very characteristic of God's love. And with that, we know that then for we have a father who is loving. And the role of a father is to help a child develop, to mature. And this morning what we're going to be looking at is God's maturing love, the, the father's maturing love. In a recent study by the Father Project, the Fatherhood Project, which is a nonprofit fatherhood program that seeks to improve the health and well-being of children and families by empowering fathers to be knowledgeable and active and emotionally engaged with their children. There were several findings, but I wanted to throw out just a couple things which they found. One was that father involvement using authoritative parenting, not authoritarian, but authoritative parenting, loving with clear boundaries and expectations, leads to better emotional, academic, social, and behavioral outcomes for children. Children who feel a closeness to their father are twice as likely as those who do not enter college or find stable employment after high school. They're 75% less likely to have a teen birth, 80% less likely to spend time in jail, and half as likely to experience multiple depression symptoms. High levels of father involvement are correlated with higher levels of sociability, confidence, and self-control in children. 
Children with involved fathers are less likely to act out in school or engage in risky behaviors in adolescence. Children with actively involved fathers are 43% more likely to earn A's in school, 33% less likely to repeat a grade than those without engaged dads. And that's not saying if you had bad grades that you didn't have a good father. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that fathers do have an influence. Father engagement reduces the frequency of behavioral problems in boys while also decreasing delinquency and economic disadvantage in low-income families. So the things that our culture often talks about, that an active, present father who's leading authoritatively in his home actually can, can actually disarm or deal with some of the disadvantages that come in a low-income household and help their child to succeed. And father engagement reduces psychological problems and rates of depression in young women. A father has an impact on the development of their children. And that's what we know. And we live in a culture that is actually working hard to push those things down, don't we? Now, we have extremes. We have the 1950s and 60s where we saw this kind of whole, complete, patriarchal male rule with authority or authoritarianism. And now we've seen the pendulum swing and we see a rise where men are being devalued. And we saw that over the last 20 years. And now what we're seeing is, is we're seeing an equality amongst saying that there are no differences. That there are no differences both in role and in function and in gifts and abilities, which has nothing to do with equality. Robin and I are equal, but we're different, are we not? And those differences are distinct. And God has made those differences distinct. And so what we're going to be looking at is that the father's love, a father's love, matures a child. And in the same way, the father, our father, God, his love matures us as his children. So in the same way that a father, his love matures a child, God, the father's love for us, matures us. So let's go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 13. We'll stand together as we read this passage together. It's the first 13 verses. For some, this is a very familiar verse or set of verses. For others, it may be new. But this is what it says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give way, I have, and I, if I, excuse me, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way, and it is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. 
When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these threes. But the greatest of these is love. Lord God, this morning, thank you for your love as a good father. Thank you for your love and your faithfulness, your steadfastness in loving us. Thank you for granting us life through fathers. And for some, God, we acknowledge that today is a day of celebration, and for others, it's a day of mourning. And so, Father, we, we grieve with those who have lost fathers. We grieve with those who have been hurt by fathers. We celebrate with those who have been blessed and strengthened by their fathers, and we we rejoice with those who still have their fathers present with them. Ultimately, God, we are grateful that you are our Father. Thank you, God, for offering us the grace through your Son, Jesus, so that we might become your children and heirs in your kingdom. Lord God, move me to the back this morning and may you be known and seen. And may your spirit move powerfully amongst us this morning and we ask this in your name. Amen. As we look at this idea of love, spirit-empowered love matures the body of Christ and reveals the reality of God's kingdom. Spirit-empowered love matures the body of Christ and reveals the reality of God's kingdom. Love matures and reveals. That's what God's love does. It matures the believer and it reveals God's kingdom. Now, the Greek word for love in chapter 13 is agape, And it literally means to hold in high regard or to regard with affection. It's a selfless love. And it comes from Christ and his demonstration of love for one another. It's a love that we've seen on the cross. 1 John 3.18 gives us a great picture of agape love. When John exhorts believers to let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, Agape love is a sacrificial love. And there's always been this debate of whether love is a feeling or an action. And I would say in Scripture, when we see the act of love, it is something that is impossible to devoid the two. You can't really separate and say it's only an action or it's only a feeling. It's an affection that drives the action. And it's an action that moves in spite of infection. Does that make sense? It's kind of a both and. Jesus loved us and he went to the cross. But he went to the cross 
in spite of the fact that he saw who we really were. He had no affection for our action, but he loved us. He loved his creation. He loved those he created. So agape love is something that is both. It's a selfless love that comes from Christ and is demonstrated through our love to one another. In the church of Corinth, as with many churches today, there's an emphasis that's placed on ministry, even a manifestation of the the spiritual gifts. And it's at the expense of this idea of love. As Gordon Fee puts it, possession of the charismata or the giftings is not the sign of the Spirit. Christian love is. It's our growing in love that demonstrates that the Holy Spirit is at work within us. Now notice what it says. It says, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So the truth is, is that the ministry of the body of Christ, individually and corporately, is spiritually worthless without love. The ministry of the body of Christ, individually and corporately, is spiritually worthless without love. That's true whether we're here as the body of Christ, whether we're walking as individuals with one another, whether we're walking as fathers in our own households. We can do all the right things. We can minister in all the right ways, but if we don't do it with love, it's worthless. That's what he's saying. Now, notice how Paul puts it. If I speak, if I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries, all knowledge, have all faith, give away all I have, deliver up my body, and have not love, I am a noisy gong, clanging cymbal, nothing, and I gain nothing. Wow. All that you do is worth nothing if it's void of the love of God. It changes things, doesn't it? It means that my priority is loving as Christ loved. See, Paul's making the point that a person speaking in tongues without love is like a pagan. He's spiritually dead. It's just these these symbols that are being brought together, the worst sound that you can ever imagine. It means nothing. In addition to preaching or possessing knowledge and understanding of the word and having faith that moves mountains, that all means nothing without love. You see, having discernment, knowledge, and faith without love will lead us to think of ourselves as spiritual when in reality God is actually saying we're nothing. We're looking for the measurements. We're looking for the law. And it's easy. We can use these things to measure ourselves. And what the Lord is saying, without love, we're nothing. It is one of the reasons that in Revelation 2, the very first church that he addresses is the church that's lost its first love, which is Jesus. Oh, they held their line against false teachers, and they held the truth closely, but they had lost their love for Jesus. The only way that we can love well is through Jesus, is through Christ. 
In essence, attempting to serve God without love produces self-righteousness. It produces self-justification. It produces pride. It does more harm to the body of Christ and His work than good. It's kind of like a slave driver, is it not? See, love has to be rooted in Jesus. And the main evidence of the Holy Spirit living within us is our growing love for God and for others. It's the very fruit of the Spirit, the very first one mentioned in Galatians 5.22. Love. Now, there's lots of talk today about love. We're in a month that talks a lot about love. Love wins is what we hear. Love is love. Now, while we may disagree with how things are approached, we have a community of people that for years got all truth and no love. It was the noisy, clanging gong. It was that you are condemned to hell. It was that you are weird and gross and off-putting and all these things without recognizing that our own sin is weird and gross and off-putting. Because all sin is. It's not unique to one specific sin. So what's the recoil to that? The recoil to it is the opposite. Now we make love everything all accepting and all tolerant and we've moved to the opposite side and we move to Romans 1 where now we celebrate open sin knowing the truth the problem is is God has always been the one who defines love and in the same way that we look at the culture and says that's not love the culture could look at us and say what was happening for the previous hundred and some years and go, that's not love. And guess what? Both are right. The church's exhortation is right, and the world's exhortation of the church is right. We can love and still disagree. We can be truthful and still disagree. And so the reason we know we can do that is because that's what God does with us every day. That's what the Father does. And so God is the one that defines love. It does not look like what the world is doing. That is not love. And what the church was doing for many years was not love. And so the body of Christ, his church, must be marked by God's love. And without this love, we will not mature together as followers of Christ, and we will not reflect his glory to the world. But it's impossible to do that apart from Jesus. We will always move to one extreme or the other. To harshness, tolerance. Without Jesus. Now we must surrender to him and actively seek the work of the Holy Spirit in our life to love him as he loves. Romans 5.5 5 affirms this when it says, but hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Now listen to this, 
through the Holy Spirit. The only way that you are to love and can love as Jesus loved is through the Holy Spirit. You can't do it any other way. You try, but you're going to fail miserably. That's what Scripture says. The only way to do that is through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, one of the primary differences between spiritual love and human love is that spiritual love seeks relationship with Christ first and then with others. It puts the priority on Jesus and our relationship with him first and then with others. Why? Because the reason that we love is because God is love. He is the definer of love. He's the one that has loved us in spite of our own sin. 1 John 4.16 says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. One of the most famous passages that people use to quote Scripture, God is love. Totally pulled out of context. Because what they're saying is, is God is not the definer of love. They are saying that anything that I deem as love is God. But God has clearly defined what love is. He has defined his characteristic. He's defined what love is. He's laid that out clearly. So let's think about this just for a minute and read again this portion of the scripture. And I want us to replace the word love for God. So we look at verse 4. It says, God is patient and kind. God does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. God does not insist on his own way. God is not irritable or resentful. God does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. God bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God never ends. Wow. It changes your rendering of that passage, doesn't it? This is the very character of God that's being proclaimed. When we love, we are proclaiming the very character of God. But do you realize that that's how God loves you? That's how God loves me? That's the Father that we have? The Father who what? The Father who is patient and kind. Oops, I screw up on that. The God who does not envy or boast or is not arrogant or rude. Yep, failed at that again. The Father who does not insist on his own way but is not irritable or resentful. The Father does not rejoice in wrongdoing but rejoices with truth. Our Father bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the God that we serve. And this is the God who has redeemed us. Man, who couldn't help but be matured in that love when he loves us? So maturing Christ-like love is actually a grace of the Holy Spirit, and it displays his work in our life. Maturing Christ-like love is a grace of the Holy Spirit and displays his work in our lives. Listen, if you're just trying to be more patient, it's not going to happen. If you're just trying to be more kind, it's not going to happen. You can put all the effort in the world to it. The only way that comes is by seeking God's grace. Praying, God, Give me patience, the prayer that most of us hate to pray. Because watch out, suffering comes next, 
right? Trial. But what about kindness? We don't ever think about not praying for kindness, and yet guess what's going to happen? You pray for kindness, there's a good likelihood something's going to come into your life to test your kindness. That we pray for because God is sharpening and growing us, and he does it in ways that, guess what? There are times in your life where you step back and you go, wow, that's different than I used to handle that. Aren't there? That's his grace. You did nothing to, to grow in it except for pursue him, seek to him, and submit to him. When God says, be long-suffering with this person, okay, I will. So maturing Christ-like love, then, is both long-suffering and kind. It says love is patient and kind. And that word patient in the original language speaks the idea of being patient even when wronged. It's long-suffering. Patience is not a short-term thing. Long-suffering means that, yeah, I'm going to actually be wronged. But I got to stand with them. I got to walk with them. As I was getting ready this morning, Elise and I were talking about an instance of somebody that I'm very close with. But when I first met that person, said some things to me that were constantly hurtful and challenging and difficult. And I remember thinking to myself, what is wrong with this person? And I watched that person blossom and grow in Jesus. Long suffering. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Our God is patient towards us, therefore we should walk in patience with others. But the only way to do that is with Jesus. The second thing that maturing Christ-like love is, is that it's protecting good, hopeful, and faithful. It's protecting good, hopeful, and and faithful. It says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, this word bears all things actually in Greek means to cover closely. It, it dealt with the idea of sealing things so that water couldn't get in and destroy them. It's different than enduring. It, it, it's protecting things from things which may destroy at the heart of this protection is gentleness and self-control. It is what is meant when Peter says that love covers a multitude of sin. It means that when I've been wronged, when I've been hurt, it means that rather than going out and making somebody else's sin fully known, it means that I cover that over them in the hopes of reconciliation and leading them towards Jesus. It means that when I know somebody else's sin, that unless it's instructed by Scripture to make it known, that I continue to be patient and kind, walking with that person in the hopes that they might come to repentance and faith. At the heart of it is cutting away this issue of slander or gossip. And it's saying that I'll be gentle with you and I will have self-control. I'll be patient and kind towards you. And in so doing, God uses that love to sharpen us and to sharpen them. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. 
He said, I would, my brothers and sisters, that we could all imitate the pearl oyster. A hurtful particle intrudes itself into its shell, and this vexes and grieves it. It cannot eject the evil, and what does it do but cover it with a precious substance extracted out of its own life by which it turns the intruder into a pearl? Oh, that we could do so with the provocations we receive from our fellow Christians, so that the pearls of patience, gentleness, long-suffering, and forgiveness might be bred within us by that which has harmed us. How do you deal with people who have harmed you? Do you walk with them in love or do you walk with them in hate? He goes on and he talks about believing all things. Now, believing all things is not talking about gullibility or becoming enabler, but rather it's a desire to see the best in others and give them the benefit of the doubt. It really is the essence of goodness which God is displaying towards us, which deals with generosity and going the extra mile, which isn't required. And then we mature in love through hoping all things. See, love has confidence in the future and not pessimism. It looks to the future in Christ. It doesn't say that this is always the way it has been and it won't get any better. It moves forward with peace and joy, standing on truth that we find in Matthew 19, 26, which says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. That's the hope that we have. That's why when we look out at our culture and we see our culture going downhill, as Christians, I feel like we're kind of closing in on ourselves, and yet God is saying, don't close in on yourselves, go out with my strength. This is an opportunity. We have an opportunity in our culture to proclaim the love of Jesus. We have a culture talking about love, and you know what we're doing? We go, I disagree with their idea of love. Well, then turn it around and tell them what love is, right? That's what God's calling us to do. He's calling us to step up and to be that voice, to share the truth, and then to demonstrate it. What does real love actually look like? Why is it that God calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily? Because this life is just but a speck. Because God has something far greater for you. And oh, by the way, if I tell you that you're going to need to do something that's going to drastically change your life, by loving you, I'm going to stand with you in the same way that God stands with me. I'm not going to leave you on your own to be lonely and desperate into your own devices. How hopeless is that? But when we call people to that, then we, as the body of Christ, become a family we are operating as a family. We come around one another and walk with one another in love, even in their sin. We are what? We are bringing the truth to them in love. Now, sometimes the truth in love doesn't always feel good. And if we're not walking with Jesus, guess what? It's not going to always feel loving. But guess what? That's where we leave that in the Lord's hands because we have a Father. I can guarantee you, my children, after I spanked them, didn't always feel loved. I hope they did, but I'm sure, in fact, I'm not sure. I know that I had children that were angry after, got, after getting a spanking. Their moment was like, yeah, I don't want that ever again, and you've made me mad, right? When God deals in our life, there are times, but that doesn't mean we don't love, right? But that's why as a child... 
And now as an adult sitting at Thanksgiving, you go, yeah, I deserve that. That was loving. Right? The love matures us. So maturing Christ-like love then is not these few things. We saw that it's long-suffering and kind. We've seen that it's, it's good. Now we see that maturing Christ-like love is not envious. It's not prideful. It's not selfish. It's not irritable and unforgiving. Now I think for a lot of us, we can resonate with those. We can see in our life where we become irritable or unforgiving or selfish. And those are areas where we begin to pray more into seeking the Lord. God, grow those areas of my life. And as a father, as a a human father, we want to walk in a place where that's not what we're walking in. And if we see that, we need to ask the question and we need to begin going, Lord, Reveal to me these areas of sin that are causing this. You see, flip those words around. And we can really see that love is content. It possesses outward and inward humility because it's not prideful. It's considerate and seeks the good of others. It's not selfish. It's even-tempered, and it's forgiving. Take those opposites and apply that to what love is. It's content. It's humble. It seeks the good of others before ourselves. It's even-tempered, and it's forgiving. You see Jesus in that? Imagine what would happen if people experienced this kind of love. Imagine what happens when we experience this kind of love. The second thing that we see in verse 6, it says, it does not rejoice of wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love does not praise or stay quiet regarding sinfulness. It is not praising, and it does not stay quiet regarding sinfulness. Love does not rejoice when someone participates or falls into sin. Rather, it grieves because God grieves. We're dealing with a situation where Something had happened at uh, a high school in the area. And two students got into a fight. Now, the one student that got in trouble, who went to jail, is a guy that was very likable. And it really stayed out of trouble. The kid that got hurt in the fight and has some very lasting effects, well, it was wrong what happened to him. But it's been interesting to hear how many people have said, well, he kind of had it coming because the kid's got a big mouth. That's rejoicing. That's rejoicing in wrongdoing. It's an attitude that we can have, can it? Well, they kind of got what was coming to them. It's subtle, but that's rejoicing in wrongdoing. One of the reasons that we need to love well is because as we mentioned a minute ago, we live in a culture that is celebrating sin. And the church has to know how to respond with that. And the way to respond to a 
a culture that's rejoicing is sin is not to come back with more harshness and just utter truth, but it's to show them the love of Jesus in loving truth. It does not mean that we stay quiet, but it does mean the way that we do it matters. It does mean that the way that we bring the truth in love matters. We don't celebrate sin as followers of Jesus. We just don't. That's what he's saying. Because God is not celebrating it. God himself is not celebrating sin. He's not rejoicing over sin. And therefore, we ought not celebrate and rejoice over those things which God does not celebrate and rejoice. God is not quiet on the matter. He speaks to it in truth with love. He took sin so seriously that he went to the cross on our behalf and took the rightful punishment of our own sin. He took death, and then he overcame death. And for all of those who believe in Jesus, we now have his righteousness. We have his life. And there will be a day that he will come and he will resurrect his people so that we might have life eternally with him. Now notice, notice what verse 8 says. For years, this rendering has been a bit confusing in New Testament translations in English. It's often been spoken of as love never fails. The context of the passage and the Greek rendering is actually love never ends. Love never ends. What it's saying is, is that love is eternal. And that's why in verse 9 through 10 it says that the spiritual gifts will pass away or cease when the perfect, that is Jesus, comes. When Christ returns at the end of the age, when he comes and he returns for his people to restore, to bring new heavens and new earth, the gifts will pass away, they will cease, and they won't be needed. He continues in verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. His point is that a person's focus on the gifts rather than love for Christ and others is a sign of immaturity because God will make himself fully known when he returns. God is the one that will make himself fully known. And here's the beauty. The beauty is because God never ends, and because love never ends, it is the one thing that we see as eternal. In 1 John 4, it says, anyone who's not loved does not know God because God is love. Now listen to verse 13 here in our passage. So now faith hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Why is it the greatest of these three? The reason is, is that when Jesus comes, your faith will be fulfilled, complete. No longer will faith be needed because he will be standing in your presence and it will be fully fulfilled. Hope. 
when Jesus returns, your hope will be fulfilled. Everything that you could imagine in Christ will be fulfilled in totality. All of his promises, every ounce of scripture will be true and fulfilled. No longer will you hope because your hope will be fulfilled in Jesus. But there is one thing that remains. In God's kingdom, that one thing that will remain, love. Out of all that this earth has to offer, the glorious generosity of Jesus, the thing that will remain is love for one another. Perfectly. That's awesome. We will know what it is to have our love in Christ completely and utterly fulfilled. And we will continue to love. It will be the one remaining enduring thing. Why? Because God himself is love. And he never ends. And love never ends. Do you see the love that the Father has for you this morning? Do you see that this is how he loves us? Not with the imperfection of man, but with the life-altering agape love? And quite possibly, the greatest earthly gift that the Father has given to you and to me is the ability to love others in the power of Jesus, just as he loved. When we love as Jesus loved, There is no greater evidence of the work of God in your life and the work of God present and displayed to others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful passage proclaiming your love to us. May we be a people who love you well, and on this Father's Day, may we see you as the Father who is loving Regardless of anything that has happened in this life with earthly fathers, may we see you as loving. If we've been blessed with a great father, may we rejoice in knowing that our father reflected you, Father. And if we weren't blessed with a a very loving father, may we know that we have the perfect loving father in you. May we find all of what we need in you. And may it be applied to our lives through Jesus. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.